Father, I, I just ask uh, for comfort uh, for us. Uh, Lord, it's so easy to just want to panic and freak out. Uh, the world is so, uh, so messy. God, I pray that as we consider the things that we are uh, experiencing right now in our world, uh, globally, and even just in our community, and uh, Lord, just give us a peace of knowing uh, that you are in the midst and that, God, you are staying here, uh, that you're not the God who has departed, you're the God who stayed. Um, Lord, I pray that your, uh, your message, your word would speak to our hearts this morning. God, draw us closer to you, help us to know more about you. God, I pray that we'd be a, a better influence on this world by the, the words that we hear this morning. God, I pray that you'd impart wisdom on us, that we could leave here today uh, a changed people uh, with, with more purpose and more influence in this world than we had before we walked in. Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, God, that I pray that it would be impressed upon them that they, they really need to give their life to you, to trust in you. God, of all the things in the world um, to trust in, you're probably, you are the most important thing uh, that we should trust in. Uh, God, I, I thank you for your promises and your, your faithfulness to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last we left uh, in Genesis 47, it was kind of like in the middle. Uh, so Joseph had basically gone down to Goshen and the reunion was complete. He finally saw his father after a very extended period of time. Uh, he sees his father, they hug, they kiss, uh, and they have this moment together. And uh, one of the things that was on uh, Jacob's mind kind of comes out right then and there. Uh, and you'll see it in verse 27. It says, Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property. Uh, they, were, they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die. So I'm going to just pause it there. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting here, so 17 years. If you recall, the time that when uh, Joseph got put in the pit, how old was he? Anybody know? He was about 17. Now he's reunited with Joseph in Goshen, and now he lives yet another 17 years. So he gets kind of a bookend. He gets 17 years of his life at the first front end in Hebron where he lived, and now he gets 17 years at the end of his life uh, before he's a past. Um, I think that's interesting. What does not transpire here, or maybe we don't know because the Word of God doesn't record it, but it doesn't seem to be any uh, complaint from Jacob saying like, man, where'd those 22 years go? I wish we had those 22 years together. I think in hindsight, if anything, Jacob realized that, hey, at least I got the 17 on the end, and it was worth the blessing. It's a matter of perspective, right? It's not the, you know, I got robbed. It's a, I, at least I got this. The opportunity was there. So either way, it was kind of a divine uh, thing with numbers here. Um, he's getting to the point where he's old. He knows he's old. And uh, like most of us, uh, we all kind of deal, we've talked about this in Sunday school class a little bit. I'm going to rehash. Sorry for those of you who heard this already this morning. Um, we all kind of deal with mortality at, at different levels in different ways, right? Uh, as you get older, you probably think about it a little bit more than somebody who's older. Because when you're younger... You're thinking, I got time. I don't have to, I don't have to wrap my head around mortality. Um, but the idea is that we are mortal. We, we all know at some point our time is going to be near. And then a virus comes out, and all of a sudden we worry that, well, maybe my time is even closer than I thought. Uh, because, it, you know, you see things like this hastening people's approach to that day. Um, so it's natural to react. It's natural to think to yourself, what do I do in the time that I have left. 
I mean, that, that is a real valid question. If you knew that your time was short, how would you spend those last moments? And these are things that people think about, especially as you get older. Uh, you think to yourself, well, where do, what do I do? How, how what do I spend it? And I would argue and I would contend that the Christians, it really shouldn't be any different. No matter what age you are, no matter what day it is, that it's all glory to God every day. On every day, it's his presence is what matters. And you live it to the fullest for him as best you can. Now, sadly, in this world, you see people reacting to the news of this virus very differently. In fact, I think you would see, and I would suggest to you that the unbelievers, it's very apparent to the way they panic. And I would say as Christians, like, there should be no panic. Because you know this is not your world to begin with. You don't belong here. Hebrews, we don't know the author of Hebrews, but he wrote about these men of faith. And he, after he got done talking about all these faithful acts, he concluded it with this uh, verse, in, verse 13 through 16 in Hebrews. He says, all these people, and that, that's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's who all these people are, plus a host of others. Um, they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Now, this is, he's directly referring to the fact that Abraham, he was promised lots of kids and lots of land. And at the day of his death, he had one kid and a funeral plot is all he had for land. And so he continues. He says, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, they admitted that maybe it wasn't in his lifetime, but maybe it was in his kid's lifetime that the promises were going to be unfolding. So they, lit it, they looked at it from a distance. But he also goes on, he adds something else here that I think is something true for all of us that we should take in consideration. He says, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on this earth. In other words, this is not our home. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. We are looking for another place. This is just temporary. I think after like a million, billion years in eternity, this will seem like a ride on a school bus to us. It'll just be a short little blip on the radar considering the, you know, 70, 80 years, it's just a little while. But in eternity? <laughs> Can't even wrap your head around that, right? So what do you do when your time draws near? Well, we look at the uh, fathers of, of Jacob. Abraham wanted Isaac to get a wife. That's what he did. And as you go back in Genesis and kind of read through that, Abraham was getting old, and it says as he was getting old, the thing that was most important to him was to get his son hitched. Uh, and then when you read about Isaac, Jacob's father, uh, he wanted some food, a good meal, and he wanted to give a blessing. Uh, and that's when the kind of the switcheroo happened, uh, when he was drawing near to his end. Uh, so the question could be asked, what is it that you want to happen when you're drawing near your end? What kind of, have you already thought about? What will it look like when you draw near to your end? What will you be asking or calling upon? Here he says, he called for his son Joseph, and he said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show, show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they, they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. And then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Uh, a couple of things that I think are interesting here is that, um, 
The thing that is most pressing on Jacob's mind is not that his death is coming necessarily, but where his body is going to be laid to rest. That's very important to him. Now, my parents have bought a, a cemetery plot like up the street here by the Methodist Church. That's where my uh, grandparents are buried. And it's a, it's a first come, first serve, first serve basis right now. Uh, they plan on getting cremated and they, they even fit like nine people in this cremated spot. So, you know, first come, first serve. It's kind of understood where we're all going to go in our family. We, it's kind of a weird thought, but that's what we've, we've carried out this plan. Um, I, we, my dad didn't swear to me or didn't ask me to swear to him, hey, put me in that spot, but it's agreed upon. We, we kind of know where it's going. Um, he seems very concerned. He didn't just say, you know, at the end of this phrase, Joseph said, you know, I'll do what you say. And he's like, no, that's not good enough. I want you to swear to me you're going to do what you say. So there's, a, there's an emphasis, there's an adder, like that's not enough. Like you got to swear it to me. Um, so one question is like, why is this so important to him? Why does he care so much? And the other question I guess I have here is, why is he talking to Joseph? Reuben's the firstborn son. Well, what we're seeing here is the, the rights or the privilege of the firstborn son is being transferred to Joseph. That, that, is, that was kind of in the history of, of things. The obligation to bury the father and to take care of these affairs was the firstborn son. And so Joseph is now getting the rights and privileges and he's making sure that Joseph is aware that he's going to get the inheritance as if he was a firstborn son. He is firstborn of Rachel, his beloved wife, but he is like down on the totem pole. He's like number 11 uh, in terms of number of children that were born to him. So uh, he's, he's concerned about that. He's, he's making sure that Joseph knows these things, but he's saying, swear to me. I think the reason why he cares so much is the statement that he wants to make about his life. Because a funeral is often a time when we reflect about the person, right? We get together, we sit there, and we talk about, like, we tell stories about that person and give each other testimonies, and we love to, like, regale, like, what was their life about? Well, I don't think what they're going to talk about is Jacob the idol worshiper. Like, I think he once very clearly stated at his funeral that I'm not like the Egyptians. Don't bury me anywhere near the Egyptians because I'm not an idol worshiper. Go take me back to the place of my home where my parents were because I believe in the God of Yahweh. And that's where my parents are buried kind of thing. I think it's also a statement in the sense that like, I think Jacob knows that this is where his people are going to belong. He believes very much in the promise of the numbers, of the fact that they're going to have kids and lots of them. But he also believes very much that when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And then when God repeated the promise to Isaac, I'm going to give you this land. And then God showed up to Jacob and said, hey, I'm going to give you this land. All of them believed. So much so that he's like, I don't even want my, I don't, when I turn to dust, I want my dust to be in the land. I'm going to become part of the land in a a sense. So we, we learn a lot at funerals, don't we? We learn what people actually believed what they actually lived out, what their faith actually meant, kind of culminates in the funeral. You kind of know who gave glory to God every day. Even their funeral is a testimony about who God was in their life. And I think that's really, if anything else, Jacob wants his last day, his burial, to be a testimony to the God that he served and loved. So sometime later, Joseph was told that his father was ill. So 
17 years have passed. We don't really know what happened in the 17 years. We know that they cried when he got to Goshen. We know that they got this land. And then 17 years, we fast forward in time in Scripture. Now we've had this encounter. Joseph's kind of talked a little bit with, with uh, his father. And now his father, it, now it's getting real. He's ill. It says here, so he's ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied at his strength and sat up on the bed. So he is bedridden at this point. So it sounds like he doesn't even get out of the house. It's like his time is really near at this point. So Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. And he said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So what is he doing? He sits up in bed, and he reminds him the promises of old. The same thing that Abraham was told, same thing Isaac is told, same thing Jacob is told. Now he's passing this on to Joseph and saying, hey, God made a promise. Count the stars if you can. That's how many your descendants are going to be. The land, it's going to happen. Now, why is this so important? Because the promises that God makes come to fruition. So when we read through scripture and we see promises like this, and then we can fast forward in scripture and see like, hey, this actually happened. We know when then God says, if I die for your sins and you put your trust in me, we can take that to the bank. We can trust in that promise because every promise that God ever tells, it actually happens the way he says it's going to happen. So we should delight when we see these covenant promises going through and carrying out through the Bible because we know it's all building to the biggest of all covenant promises, and that is to save us from our sins. And now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit. They will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, uh, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way. A little distance from Ephrata, so I buried her there beside the road of Ephrata, that is Bethlehem. So what is he doing? He's kind of recounting uh, the story of things. First, he talks about the promise, and then he kind of talks about a little bit what's happened in his life. But he's also doing something really important here. He's reckoning these children as if they were his. Keep in mind, Joseph married an Egyptian woman and had two kids with this Egyptian woman. And Jacob's making it very clear, like, hey, I don't, I don't care what pedigree they came from. I don't care that it's an Egyptian wife. As long as they are living the faith that I'm living, I'm adopting them into the family. He's making it very clear to him that this is, this is how God wants it. And it's very prophetic in what he's saying. And it's very much true about us. When God looks at us, we're not in the family when we start. We... we <laughs> We can talk about this whole thing, this mortality thing, right? The whole, the whole reason we die in the first place is because we're all in this family of sin. We're, we're all part of this original sin deal. And the only way to get out of that family and into God's family is to put your trust in Christ. So what you, when you do that, there's a reckoning that happens. You become a part of a new family. There's an adoption process that comes in. God basically takes ownership of you and says, you know what? You get all the rights as if you were always in my family. You are going to be treated like the first born of my children. 
That's how special you will become once you become adopted. Romans says the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You have a new relationship with Christ. Once you accept this gift of salvation, he is now your father. And you inherit the rights and this great inheritance that he has stored up for you. And adoption was never, like, there's a confusion. Like, a lot of people adopt as a plan B. Like, they try to have biological kids of their own. And then they go like, well, we can't. We'll, we'll plan B. We'll, we'll go get some kids. We'll adopt. That was never God's plan B. You're not plan B. You're plan A. Adoption was always his priority for his people. Adoption was plan A for us. It's not like he said, well, I'll try something different now. No. He always had this in mind for you to become part of his family from the beginning. And Israel saw that the sons of Joseph... He asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here. Joseph said to his father, then Israel said, bring them to me as I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could, he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. So what is happening here is, uh, I think, an interesting little tidbit. He says, he says, who are these? As if he didn't know. Well, it says here his eyes were failing. So he's a little bit like his father was at the time when, when Jacob and Esau had the, the, the uh, switcheroo process in the first place. So he's clarifying, who, who do I have in front of me? Because what unfolds here is not what Joseph wanted, but it is what Jacob wants to, to send a message. Even in this blessing, there's a, there's a testimony, a statement that's being made. But I like Joseph's answers when he says, who are these? He says, these are the sons God has given me. In other words, it's, like, it's almost like he's saying, like, hey, I can't really take credit for this. I can take credit in the sense that God gave them to me for a little while. And as parents, that's how it is. You're like, you have kids, but they go away. <laughs> God gives them to you for a while. He trusts you to raise them. And kinda, and, but after a while, they're, they're their own. Uh, and they go out into the world. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's how he looks at us. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. God looks at us. There's this reckoning process. We become his children. We become his possession. Just like the, the spirit of adoption. I think it's, it's important for us to recognize that we've got a new dad. You may have an earthly father and mother, but you have a heavenly father that has now taken possession of you if you're in Christ. So we continue on. Then Joseph removed, uh, uh, removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down uh, his face to the ground. Uh, and Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right, and Israel's left hand, Manasseh on his left, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them to, close to him. So he's bringing them accordingly oldest son, youngest son. So when he puts his right hand out, he should be, have his right hand on the oldest son, and when he puts his left hand out, it should be on the youngest son. Okay? But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, 
he put his left hand out on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So what is going on here? Is this some kind of cruel joke? Uh, Joseph seems to think so, but uh, it's really not. Uh, as he's crossing his arms, he seems to explain this. Uh, this is the fifth time in Scripture that we see what I like to think of as a reversal of something. First, we had Cain and Abel. Abel was kind of beloved by God as the younger. Then we had Ishmael and Isaac, and Isaac was elevated over Ishmael. Then we had Jacob and uh, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob is elevated. Reuben and Joseph, Joseph is elevated over Reuben. And now we get Manasseh and Ephraim. So five times we've seen this reversal throughout Scripture, throughout Genesis, this keeps happening. What does this mean for us? Well, I think uh, this is my take on it, is, is this is the great reversal that happens when we come in Christ. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve any position. We don't deserve the rights of sonship or daughtership. We don't deserve the things that come with the inheritance of adoption, but we get it. And what comes with that is a double portion. That is effectively what reads out throughout Scripture, is the oldest son always gets a double portion of the inheritance. And that is, that's going to come up again, as you'll see. But really, being in Christ is a reversal process. You know, when you're not in Christ, you're in sin. You're in the, the family of death, effectively. You don't want to be in that family. You want to be in the eternal family, the, the family that lives forever. And only that way that happens if God reverses your situation for you. And he does that on the cross. So then you see Joseph's reaction. He says, then he blessed uh, Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day and the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by name in the names of the fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. So the, the big payoff here is the increase, right? The fruitfulness. Now, Joseph's got in mind of this increase and understands it and understands this double portion blessing, but He's got his arms crossed, and Joseph is about to react to this. He says, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hands to move it. I can imagine him grabbing his hands and kind of like, no, let me fix this kind of thing. And his father kind of fighting him back with all the strength that he's had. So he says, he took his father's hands to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to him, no, my father... Uh, this is the firstborn. Uh, your right hand on his head. Uh, but his father refused and said, I know my son. I know. He too will become uh, a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, he is, uh, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name uh, will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. So Joseph obviously has, you know, trouble with this because it's like, hey, don't we follow tradition around here? And Jacob's like, nah, we're not going to follow tradition. And in some ways, he gets very displeased. Um, so what does this mean for us? Well, I think it could mean a, lot, a number of things, spiritual implications for us, is the fact that we don't always see things the way God sees things. I, I, clearly, like, the natural way of things doesn't always fit the mold. And I think sometimes we get displeased when we think that God has got it wrong. And I think that 
this is a tendency that we all have to fight and have to recognize that, hey, maybe this is what God had planned all along. Maybe this, this is the kind of blessing, the way he wants to flow it. So that's one uh, implication. I, I, I reached to try to find other implications. I really couldn't come up with anything more than that. Uh, so then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, I will give more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Now, this is the only military conquest that we know of about Jacob. And it's actually, we don't know about it from previously in Scripture. It's the only time it's ever mentioned. So we don't really know much about this battle. It could have happened down around that time uh, when Simeon and Levi uh, kind of butchered the, the Shechemites. Uh, it could have been around that. We don't know. Um, but clearly, there was at least a, a military campaign of some sort that Jacob uh, put forward. Uh, but what's interesting here is he's making it very clear. He says, he says, I want you to have one more ridge of land than to your brothers. In other words, a double portion. He's, he's very explicit now, like, hey, you are getting the firstborn rights. You're getting double portion. Everybody else gets a single portion. You get twice as much. And this comes up throughout Scripture a lot, believe it or not. Uh, this is a thing. Um, when you see uh, Samuel, uh, he's married to Hannah. Uh, and he's got, uh, El- I think I got his name wrong. I think it's Elkanah. Elkanah, Cana. He's married to a, another lady, Panea. And Panea gets a single portion, but when he gets to Hannah, he gives a double portion because I loved her more. And the Lord closed her womb. Well, she eventually has a child, and that kind of plays out. And then you see uh, in 2 Kings, you see Elijah is about to get up in a chariot of fire. And what is Elisha? He says, tell me, uh, what can I do for you uh, I'm taking, when I'm taken from you? He says, let me inherit a double portion. So you see this idea throughout, um, throughout Scripture. What does it mean for us as Christians? I believe Isaiah 61, 7 kind of puts it in context for us. For us as Christians, as we are reckoned to the Father, we receive what I think is a double portion. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Isaiah is talking about the faithful in general, the people that believe and trust in God. He says, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in the inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. That sounds a lot like heaven to me. That sounds like everybody gets twice as much as what you think you're going to get when you get to heaven. Everybody gets treated as if you become this person of elevated status, this position of, of adoption has given you the rights of a firstborn in a way. But I will caveat this with the other side of this as well. Revelation talks about those who reject God and who continue to go their own path and continue to chase after the things of the world, Revelation says this, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion of her own cup. He, when you read this in context, it talks about this sinful lady and this sinful, the, the idea is this paradigm of people that have just utterly rejected God and completely chased after the things of this world and given themselves to their sin because they loved their sin more than they loved God. And God says, well, give them also a double portion, but give them back what they already gave to other people. That's a harsh, harsh punishment is what that is. So you can have a double portion of God's grace in heaven or you can have a double portion of what's left over in rejection in hell is really what it reads through. So 
uh, this is kind of where I drew the line uh, for Genesis uh, 48. Again, I'm in the middle of a chapter again because uh, we're going to jump forward to more blessings uh, next week. Or actually, next week Tim's preaching, but the, the following week I'm going to come back and do one last sermon to kind of ho- hopefully hone it all in together for you. And we'll get through all of 48 and all the way to 50, and finally we'll be done Genesis. Um, but uh, what a, the, the takeaways for today, the things I want you to think about is what testimony will your life say at the end? What things will you draw near to as you get closer to the end? Will your life speak to the double portion of what is waiting for you in heaven? Or will your life speak to a double portion that is waiting for you in a far worse place than heaven? That's really the, the question that is kind of being challenged or put and presented here throughout Scripture as we look at this relationship between Joseph and, and Jacob. Pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you for your love, and I thank you for the fact that you are willing to reckon us as your own child. God, we're, we're not exactly the best child to reckon to you. In fact, uh, we've offended you in many a way. But God, you still did it. You still loved us enough to bring us into the fold, to make us a part of the family, to give us the rights of the firstborn, to give us everlasting life. God, it is a, truly a remarkable privilege uh, to be uh, part of the family and to, to earn, uh, to, to be able to ha- bestowed uh, such a gift is beyond comprehension. God, I pray that we would live like a people who are saved, people that are, are not panicked about whether this world is their, their home or not, because it's really not. God, let, let whatever happens come what may. But God, I pray that our faith would shine every day. God, that your glory would be shined every day in our life uh, for what it's worth. Um, God, I pray that uh, if there's anybody here that, that does not know you, that has not trusted you, God, that they would be enticed to trust you, Lord, to know that um, they have a Father who really truly loves them, uh, that is willing to give them a double portion, you, a Father who is willing to stay, uh, even when, uh, Lord, we've wronged you, even when we've walked down paths that we shouldn't, that you're willing to continue to work with us and bring us back into your fold. God, I pray that you would just forgive us and continue to just uh, become more like your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.